Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez-Packham. Let's get on with the show. Before we get started today, I want to say some hellos and thank yous to new patrons plus listeners who've kindly left me a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. Also, a quick warning, this episode does contain occasional mild sexual references and mentions of slavery. Discretion is advised for younger listeners. First up, big thank you to Brad Hammond for your kind PayPal donation. Much appreciated. Also, amazing to hear you had a relative who was an explorer in the 1850s searching for the source of the Nile. A difficult and dangerous undertaking indeed. And yes, I'd love to hear more about it. Thank you to new patron and Gilbert and Sullivan superfan, Gabby Kay, who has become a respectable governess. Also, thank you to Bea Liner, who has signed up to be a lovable chimney sweep. I had reviews from Carlitos12000 USA, five star, quote, I find this podcast as probably the best history-related one. His voice is so soothing that it can be used to fall asleep, but the content is just too good to fall asleep to. End quote. Thank you. Blade Hunter from Sweden has left a five-star review, saying, quote, The host manages to tell captivating stories from the Victorian age with an ease and joy. A great find among the vast sea of historically themed podcasts. Well done, end quote. Brie, 123456789010, from the USA, has given me a five-star review, saying, quote, Aside from philosophy, my main academic interest is history, which I've always loved learning about. In particular, I find the Victorian period to be one of the most interesting periods in history because so much change happened in the period of one century and I wanted to see if there was a podcast that I could listen to which would exclusively cover the Victorian era. I love music, but podcasts are a great alternative to it when I'm looking for something to listen to while driving. Of course, I'm not doing much driving at the moment, but this podcast has still entertained and taught me a great deal while I'm at home. This is a great podcast for anyone who likes history. It's very well researched. End quote. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And yes, the colossal amount of change in the Victorian era is one of the things that I love most about it. Today, we are focusing a bit deeply on some events that happened to Victoria. I know I promised the courtship and proposal of Victoria and Albert. But there are some things in 1839 I have to cover as they provide crucial context on why Albert really was so important for Queen Victoria. Some didn't have world-shaking implications, but had a big impact on Queen V herself. They certainly stand out as some of the worst parts of her personal reign as a monarch. We need to talk about Lord Melbourne and Sir Robert Peel today as well. 
both a crucial early Victorian politicians. Starting with Lord Melbourne, it is easy to confuse him with the popular image of him from the recent successful TV series Victoria. In the Victoria series, he's played by the extremely handsome Rufus Sewell, who is only 18 years older than Victoria's actress Jenna Coleman. He gives Melbourne an iconic turn as a part Byronic, tragic hero, part Lord Essex to Queen Elizabeth, a pining, self-sacrificing love affair from afar. Let's separate fact from fiction. The real life Lord Melbourne, or more fully, William Lamb, second Viscount Melbourne of Kilmore, Lord Melbourne, Baron of Kilmore, Baron Melbourne of Melbourne, was absolutely not like this. He was born in 1779, so was 40 years older than Victoria. He is better known for his private life and being Victoria's first Prime Minister than for any real political achievement. Even his birth was dogged with controversy, as it was believed his father was not the first Viscount Melbourne, but actually the Earl of Egremont, with whom his mother was having an affair at the time. It was rumoured that the Earl had paid her eye-watering sum of £13,000 to switch her attentions to him from a previous lover. She was, nonetheless, a devoted and capable mother, but his family life made the rest of his political life somewhat more difficult. Politically, he'd had a fairly mundane climb from non-entity backbench wig up to post of Home Secretary. Once in post, He had helped suspend habeas corpus in 1832 over concerns about rebellion in Ireland and, as Home Secretary, he had helped put down the swing riots and introduce special commissions to try key figures, although he had at least refused to increase military powers or deployment of the army wholesale. Like most Whigs, he believed that Parliament's coercive powers should be limited, but they were used, they had to be used strongly and only as far as middle class public opinion would allow. He had opposed the Catholic Emancipation Act and then his own party's Reform Act of 1832 on the basis that the Catholic Emancipation Act hadn't done much good to help people, so there was no reason to think that the Reform Act would either. He took the same view on the Slavery Abolition Act of 1833. He also headed the government that kicked off the First Opium War. He was a thorough aristocrat. The only reason he wasn't a Tory was that he believed in the supreme powers of Parliament above the Crown. His views on slavery were strikingly old school, even for many Tories. To quote him, I say, Archbishop... What do you think I'd have done about this slavery business if I'd had my own way? I'd have done nothing at all. I'd have left it alone. It's all a pack of nonsense. Always have been slaves. In all the most civilised countries, the Greeks and Romans had slaves. However, they would have their fancy. And so we've abolished slavery. But it's a great folly. End quote. In other words, don't change things. He was utterly uncaring about slavery, not necessarily out of any particular racism or economic greed. 
he just wasn't bothered about much. And the battle over abolition involved political energy. He felt slavery had always been there, just like poverty, and that it was pointless bothering about either of them. There have always been slaves, there have always been poor people, and this reform stuff is just an emotional sentiment. At heart, Lord Melbourne just didn't seem to think politics could change anything. So why bother? Lord M's favourite political maxim was, quote, why not leave it alone, end quote, along with, quote, the whole duty of government is to prevent crime and to preserve contracts, end quote. Which, as political theories go, is about as brief and lazy as you can get. What he wasn't is world-weary, and some of his views were actually more in line with a more libertarian strand of political philosophy, as shown when he said, quote, Tolerance is the only good and just principle, and toleration for every opinion that can possibly be formed, end quote. And this one, quote, Things are coming to a pretty pass when religion is allowed to invade private life, end quote. Other politicians, Lord Palmerston especially, were enraged at the perceived laziness. Palmerston accused Lord Melbourne of lounging away in empire. Certainly, Lord M was happy to nap through sermons, speeches, boring dinners, debates in Parliament, or whatever else he decided wasn't worth the hassle. Or, he would open a newspaper in the face of someone talking to him to indicate he'd got bored. The mistake some political opponents made was to think that this meant he was incapable and wasn't paying attention. He actually had a very good grasp on the political relationships around him, certainly at least enough to retain power. He just wasn't bothered with doing anything with said power. He was chosen as Prime Minister as the least bad candidate in 1834. He barely bothered to go for the post, and only did so because King William IV invited him. So, essentially, he was handed the Prime Ministership on a plate, something most politicians work hard and backstab for for years, and he wasn't sure he was bothered. He hesitated on the basis that he didn't want the extra work, saying, quote, I think it's a damned bore. I'm in many minds as to what to do, end quote. But his friend and personal secretary, Toby Young, said, quote, Why, damn it all, in such a position was never held by any Greek or Roman, and if it only lasts three months, it will be worthwhile to have been Prime Minister of England, end quote. In habitually lazy fashion, Lord M said, All right. There was a brief interlude in 1834, where Sir Robert Peel became Prime Minister, but lost the general election. Then Lord M was back in office for six crucial years, where Victoria became Queen. He was absolutely not a Byronic hero. His good looks were fading, and his weight was increasing. He has been called the laziest Prime Minister Britain has ever had. His personal life had been complex. He had married Lady Caroline Ponsonby. She had soon fallen in passionate, all-consuming love with Lord Byron, eventually stalking him when their affair broke down. 
cutting her wrists in front of him at a public dinner, and writing a vicious satire of him and the left-wing Whig political class. Whatever Byron's many, 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 many votes, as I've said before on the show, having a stalker is a horrific and unjustifiable experience. Lord Melbourne took his wife to Ireland and stood by her. His Whig friends were nowhere near as tolerant, and it nearly destroyed his political career before it began. He put up with terrible domestic violence from his wife, who threw plates at him at home and speared one of his paintings. He also had to watch his wife pursue Lord Byron for sexual relations, and his mother getting on pretty close terms with Byron too. His mother disliked Lady Caroline and was happy to help arrange the affair with Byron. It was heartbreaking for him, as he really did love his wife. So, yeah, thanks mum, but maybe next time don't do anyone any favours. Naturally, Victoria only heard this summary version of events and decided Lord M was close to saintly. By her standards, as a wronged husband, he had every right to complain bitterly. How noble and true to stay and suffer for love, to die a thousand deaths inside, and uphold honour with fortitude. It fitted in so well with the romantic movement and Victoria's worldview, even if she did remain blind to realities. Lord Melbourne certainly had relationships and affairs with women after his wife died. Famously, after his wife died in 1925, he allegedly got involved with Caroline Norton, a brilliant and beautiful noblewoman. She was a talented journalist, writer, fantastically intelligent and ravishingly good-looking. Despite the age difference, he was 51 and she was 22, she was extremely keen on the older man, feeling he brought intelligence and maturity unavailable in men her own age. She was already married to a man she found boring, something Lord M never was. Maybe Lord M just had a thing for women named Caroline. The affair ended up in court, but Lord M and Caroline were acquitted of having a physical affair. One Tory observer sarcastically jibed that Lord M had seemingly missed more opportunities with the lady than any man in history. Lord M suggested to Caroline that they be more careful in their correspondence in future as they were at risk of being sued for damages. She didn't take this well and her letters read a lot more like a person who is pissed off at being dumped than an innocent friend. They did eventually reconcile but it left Lord M terrified of future scandals. There were also accounts suggesting that he not only enjoyed spanking ladies with whom he was accused of having affairs, but that he was keen on whipping girls he took into domestic service from an orphanage. He is known to have said to Victoria that he wished he had been caned more by his tutors and he talked wistfully of being repeatedly flogged at Eton. When Victoria observed she thought the caning of boys was abhorrent and degrading, he chortled that it was the pain they disliked. He didn't mention to Victoria that he had once written to one of his mistresses, saying, quote, A few twigs of birch 
applied to the naked skin of a young lady, produces with very little effort a very considerable sensation, end quote. He had acquired what was called the English vice, the particular love of being caned by power figures or caning other people. It was common enough in literature and practice to be noticed as a cultural staple with much erotic fiction written about it at the time. So Lord M wasn't alone in this. The Victorians didn't have a term for BDSM, but it existed in many forms, notably with the infamous maid and secret BDSM submissive Hannah Culwick, whose diaries scandalised and tantalised scholars. Power imbalance around Lord Melbourne and the girls he took in make it less of a consensual BDSM dynamic and more abuse of power. Not that whipping was uncommon when it came to orphans or other children who expected routine beatings from people as a matter of course. Melbourne struggled to raise his mentally disabled son Augustus. When the boy died at 19, it was a hammer blow to Melbourne who lost the last link to his dead wife. Suddenly, he was called on to guide the new queen. She might have seen him subconsciously as a sexualized father figure, as some people thought, but it seems likely he found her filling the role of family surrogate. To him, she was a daughter to guide and advise, a last ray of hope in his difficult later life. He was unbothered by poverty and felt children should be out working, not being educated. The poor was something he preferred not to see, and he felt it was mostly their own fault anyway. He even chided Victoria for reading Dickens. He didn't want her exposed to views of poverty, and his discouraging attitude to it had a lifelong impact on Victoria. I hope by this point you will have noticed he really wasn't a Byronic tragic hero, and Victoria was pretty blind to his flaws and vices. Sir Robert Peel was a very different character. Hard-working, intelligent, he was awkward and earnest socially. He was a talented reformer. In many ways, he was more like a Whig, except he disliked Catholic emancipation and tended towards Anglicanism and royalism. He was born in Lancashire, son of a baronet who had made his fortune in textile manufacturing. This meant he was viewed as coming from trade. His rise in the Tory party was meteoric, if bumpy in places, and he was involved in some key reforms. He was also willing to work across party lines to achieve goals he felt to be in the national interest. It was clear, whether you were a Tory or not, he was an extremely talented, hard-working politician and historical figure. Queen V had come through a terrible childhood and was now the inexperienced queen of a deeply patriarchal society. She was only 18 years old, had to learn what it meant to rule as British monarch, to play the games of politics and somehow construct an identity and brand for herself as queen. Her main guide in all of this was, for better or worse, Lord Melbourne. She also had to deal with the assumptions floating around her as a woman. 
and of course the problems every teenager has to face as they find themselves launched into the adult world. Unfortunately, the 1830s were a terrible decade for the UK in general. Politics was stormy, with arguments over slavery, Jamaica, Canada, Catholic emancipation and the Great Reform Act of 1832. In the wider countryside of the UK, the economy was struggling with the impacts of the Industrial Revolution, mass wage stagnation and rising unemployment. Certain regions were struggling under intense economic downturns. Canada had been caught up in the 1837 banking and economic crisis and gone into a form of revolt. In fact, 1839 alone was an incredibly busy year for the United Kingdom and the Empire. The first opium war with China started. The UK took over Hong Kong. The Honourable East India Company annexed Aden. The first Anglo-Afghan war started. India experienced colossal cyclones. British colonisation of New Zealand was begun in earnest. And British diplomatic energies were occupied trying to force the French to abandon support for the Egyptian takeover of Syria and Arabia and to return them to the Ottoman Empire. Rebellions in Canada led to the controversial Durham Report, leading to the Canada Bill and then the merging of the Upper and Lower Canadian provinces. For a man who was as supremely unbothered as Lord Melbourne, events kept forcing work onto him in a very vexing way. In what's becoming a tradition for this podcast, I'll say again, the 1830s were just a terrible decade for everyone involved, especially in England. Climate strife, famines, mass unemployment and wars. The British establishment had responded to increasing hardship by cutting poor reliefs, as they felt benefits encouraged laziness. For good measure, they refused demands for rent relief. The results were wholly predictable. Unemployment continued, wages were cut, crime increased, and people tried to form trade unions, only to be arrested, tried and often deported to the Australian penal colonies. Worse still, the poor law relief reforms meant that benefits were not paid outdoors, as they say, any longer. Claimants had to check into the dreaded workhouse, known as indoor relief. Many chose quick death by starvation rather than go to the workhouse. Others turned to the army or crime. Some counties in southern England had seen so much rural unemployment that workers started mass protests and burning of property in the name of the mythic Captain Swing. Lord Melbourne, as Home Secretary, had helped put these down with force. Even after the riot subsided, the underlying injustices burned. Rich landowners controlled Parliament and the courts. Reform was always talked about, but in reality, it was the rich benefiting from the proceeds of growth, the early Industrial Revolution, and getting mass bailouts for giving up slave estates in the Caribbean. Tensions exploded periodically into riots, but these were typically put down swiftly. In 1837, the country tipped from a recession into depression, 
caused by a banking crisis. April 1837 saw a massive run on various banks in the USA. By May 1837, New York City suspended all paper-to-gold-silver redemptions. This was a specky contraction of epic proportions, which quickly spread to New Orleans and then onwards. The banking system went into collapse, with catastrophic results. 40% of US banks closed, and half a million people were unemployed in the greatest economic crisis till the 1930s. London and Dutch banks had a series of heart attacks in response, meaning the financial class was jumpy to say the least, and giving out money to the poor seemed an indulgent fantasy, even if they were inclined to. In 1838, things got bad enough in the wider English rural economy to culminate in what is called the Battle of Bossenden Woods, a millennialist prophet named Sir William Courtenay gathered enough followers to get 40 rioters armed with sticks to perform a peaceful protest march. They were put down hard by a company of soldiers from the 45th Nottinghamshire Regiment. Their rebellion had been crushed. It has been claimed this was the last true battle on English soil. If that's right, it is pretty depressing. A more popular movement out in the countryside and the big towns were the Chartists. They were calling this after a charter demands was set out at the Crown and Anchor public house on the 28th of February. William Lovett, working on behalf of the London Working Men's Association, was the main author. The charter demanded, 1. All men to have the vote, universal male suffrage. 2. Voting should take place by secret ballot. 3. Parliamentary elections every year, not once every five years. 4. Constituencies should be of equal size. 5. Members of Parliament should be paid. And 6. The property qualification for becoming a Member of Parliament should be abolished. This might sound pretty reasonable to us, but in the 1830s and 40s, this was seen as revolutionary anarchism. The last two demands were vital to stop only the rich from becoming MPs. They would allow working-class MPs. Many Chartists felt betrayed by the middle class and the Whig Great Reform Act of 1832, since it had fallen far short of these demands. This was a working-class populist movement for change. Mass protest rallies were called. A draconian response by the authorities meant there were frequent riots associated with Chartism, especially the Birmingham riots and the Great Newport Rising of 1839. Victoria, though, only got limited information on the Chartists from Lord Melbourne, and she was suffering not just from the political isolation at court, but also the isolation of being at the top of the information hierarchy. Lord Melbourne had different goals to Victoria. The Prime Minister has a different job from the monarchy, and both have different needs. His main need at this point was to maintain a stable government, whilst Victoria needed to transition to an independent monarch for the whole population, not just the Whig-supporting parliamentarians. Most of the middle and upper classes simply viewed the Chartists as rebels. A lot of the military officers of the British army 
were coming to the view that the Chartists were an insurrectionist liability. In 1839, Sir Charles Napier expressed the following sentiments. The plot thickens, meetings increase, and are so violent, and arms so abound, I know not what to think. The Duke of Portland tells me there is no doubt of an intended general rising. Poor people, they will suffer. They have set all England against them and their physical force. Fools. We have the physical force, not they. They talk of their hundred thousands of men. Who is to move them when I am dancing round them with cavalry and pelting them with cannon shot? What would their hundred thousand men do with my hundred rockets wriggling their fiery tails amongst them, roaring, scorching, tearing, smashing all they came near, and when in desperation and despair they broke to fly, how would they bear five regiments of cavalry careering through them? Poor men, how little they know of physical force. End quote. He would later change his tune somewhat at least, but it's a striking indictment of the establishment's willingness to use force against civilians. In 1839, in November, there was a more serious uprising in Newport, Wales, involving around 10,000 Chartist rioters. It failed badly. On the 8th of November, 1839, after the riot was put down, Victoria expressed her approval of what she called the gallant conduct of Lieutenant Grey and his 28 soldiers against the 4,000 active Chartist rioters in Newport itself. But it is very unlikely she knew what had actually happened or why. It was clearly a busy period politically, as Victoria also noted the American banking panic had hit hard. It is striking, though, how people can be physically close to poverty and just not see it, and the injustices associated with it. For example, witnesses to a commission on conditions in the mine said that they had only lived a few miles away from the mine and had been stunned when finally confronted with evidence of half-naked girls being sent down the mines in horrific conditions. The Haskar mine disaster alone in 1838 was shocking, killing 28 children, most of whom were 8 to 12 years old. As E.P. Thompson noted in his magisterial work, The Making of the English Working Class, quote, We forget how long abuses can continue unknown until they are articulated. How people can look at misery and not notice until misery rebels. End quote. If those locals were shocked and the rich were uncaring, imagine how much more out of touch Victoria was. Literally raised in a palace, deliberately kept from the outside world, then advised by a prime minister who hated to even think about poverty. Worse, he indulged her ego and her drinking. He saw how much she hated her mother and he played to it, joining in on making snide comments about her and Sir John Conroy, it wasn't that Lord M was corrupt, per se, or wanted to make things bad for Victoria. It was that his idea of her best interests was so fundamentally shaped by his own character failings. 
1838 and 1839, continued the dubious tradition of being awful, with Victoria personally getting involved in domestic politics. She got herself into a mess involving her mother's lady-in-waiting, named Lady Flora Hastings. Victoria held a grudge against Lady Flora from her childhood, when Conroy had appointed her to spy on Victoria. Lady Flora took a carriage ride alone with Conroy on a return trip from Scotland. Soon after, she complained of nausea, and people gossiped that her stomach seemed to be growing. Victoria leapt to the conclusion that Lady Flora was having Conroy's illegitimate child. Lady Flora went to the Queen's doctor, Dr Clark. She refused to let him examine her, and was treated for nausea and vomiting. The Queen asked Lord Melbourne for his advice. He sensibly said to just leave matters alone, pointing out that English doctors weren't particularly good anyway. He immediately undermined this advice by going to see Dr Clark himself. The doctor said he couldn't be sure without an examination, but yes, it seemed likely she was pregnant. After all, he was a doctor and could only think of one reason a woman's stomach could swell. Side note, this is why doctor-patient confidentiality is vital. A doctor shouldn't be talking about who is coming to see him, never mind openly speculating about the patient's condition. The Queen felt the case was proved and told Baroness Lazen, who duly spread rumours far and wide. Victoria showed a mean, narrow-minded streak, writing in her diary on the 2nd of February 1838, quote, We cannot deny that she is, to use plain words, with child. Clark cannot deny the suspicion. The horrid cause of all of this is the monster and demon incarnate, whose name I forbear to mention, end quote. In fairness to Victoria, after the way Conroy had abused her, it isn't surprising she hated him. Both Lord M and Dr Clark had behaved extremely badly in fanning the flames of Victoria's suspicions. This event rumbled on for some time, as Victoria suffered her heartbreak over the Grand Duke Alexander and made her more serious blunder over the Sir Robert Peel government. A humiliated Lady Flora was forced to be subjected to medical examination by Dr Clark. His first examination was inconclusive, as Lady Hastings refused to remove her stays to let him look at her stomach. He pressured her to confess that she was secretly married and pregnant. When he examined her a second time, in a humiliating virginity test, he found she wasn't pregnant. His inept conduct, poor ethics and inclination to gossip had helped cause a painful scandal and he is often regarded as the most incompetent royal doctor of all time. This isn't his first failure, as long-time listeners will know, and it won't be his last. Victoria was now plunged into a feud with Lady Flora's enraged relatives. The press laid into Victoria, Melbourne and Dr Clark. The Tory opposition attacked Lord M for his poor handling of the situation. Senior Tories felt that actually Victoria was not really at fault here. The situation had been badly handled by Lord M. Victoria was inexperienced, they reasoned so her actions were understandable. Besides, at least it showed she cared about moral standards at court. He should have guided her more carefully. All he had to do was say that these kind of situations are delicate, 
wait and see discreetly. After all, if she is pregnant, we will know in a few months and have irrefutable proof. Then, just quickly speak to the lady's father and relatives to avoid scandal, but to insist she withdraw from court. That's how things are done. People would nod understandingly and no one would lose face, at least as far as the Tories were concerned. By encouraging Victoria to act publicly, Lord M had precipitated a royal scandal. Victoria's popularity took a serious hit. Anti-German sentiment was aimed at Baroness Lazen in the press. In stories planted by Conroy, the family war continued in public now, and then catastrophically, Victoria learnt that Lady Flora was dying in agony of liver cancer, which had caused the symptoms by enlarging the liver and pressing on the stomach. Victoria had to make a bedside visit to the dying woman. Victoria didn't apologise exactly, and Lord Melbourne pointedly remarked how short her visit was. The public were shocked, and Victoria's popularity plummeted. This was known as the Flora Hastings affair, and mustn't be confused with Victoria's other massive ongoing political clangor in 1839, the affair of the bedchamber. Speaking of which, on the 7th of May 1839, after a parliamentary victory by only five votes on a crucial anti-slavery bill for Jamaica, Lord Melbourne felt he couldn't carry on in government. He offered to resign. Victoria was distraught. She cried and wrote in her diary of her agony and despair. What horrified Victoria even more was that the prospective Prime Minister to replace the Whig Lord Melbourne was the Tory Sir Robert Peel. Victoria had met him and disliked him a lot. The problem was that Victoria had been raised to be a Whig by Conroy and her mother. Then, when she became Queen, her Whig Prime Minister, Lord Melbourne, had disposed of the hated Conroy. He had advised her, nurtured her, tutored her, flirted and entertained her, but never pushed her. He was getting old, but he still had a winning charm. His indifference to radical politics, or even hard work, made him an easy companion too. Peel was coming in between the complicated, but intense, relationship of Victoria and Lord Melbourne. What he wanted, and politically had to have, was a signal that the Queen had confidence in him. Otherwise, how could he possibly be head of Her Majesty's government? His request was that she at least replace the key Whig-appointed ladies-in-waiting with Tory-appointed ones. Victoria, meanwhile, had decided she was not going to be pushed around by men she didn't like or trust. She'd had to put up with that for her whole abusive childhood. Now she was the Queen. She astutely offered to give up the male members of her household, which threw Peel off his stride in their first interview. Victoria saw it as her rights as Queen being infringed on. Most importantly to her, it was a specific set of toys she didn't want and a specific man she did want as her Prime Minister. This is hugely ironic, since Peel had worked hard to create a viable Conservative Party made up of Tory moderates. He had been in opposition and in government at various points in the 1830s, and without his support, key Whig legislation couldn't have been passed into law. 
He was in many ways a natural ally and supporter of Victoria, but she couldn't see it yet. In the long term, Peel would become one of her favourite prime ministers, thanks to Elbert's peace brokering. Victoria pointedly asked Peel if other queens had been asked to change the ladies-in-waiting. Peel muttered no, but it was different as she was the current queen and he was the current prime minister. If she would kindly show confidence in him, hint hint, Her Majesty was at her most imperious. As Shakespeare might have said, Betwixt thy begging and my meditation, I am not in the giving vein this day. Peel was extremely uncomfortable and withdrew. Victoria was thrilled and felt vindicated. She thought Peel expected her to be submissive, but by standing her ground, she had sent him packing. It was a dangerous conclusion, as it meant she mistook being bloody-minded for being powerful. In fact, it crucially misread her constitutional position, Peel's painful social anxiety and his fear of her, and the shaky position of the current Parliament. She wrote to Lord Melbourne on the 9th of May 1839, stating quite clearly her view. Quote, Sir Robert Peel has behaved very ill. He insisted on my giving up my ladies, to which I replied that I would never consent. I never saw a man so frightened. He said he must go to the Duke of Wellington and consult with him when both would return, and he said this must suspend all further proceedings, and he asked if I should be ready to receive a decision which I said I would. He was quite perturbed. But this is infamous, I said. Besides, many other things, that if he or the Duke of Wellington had been at the head of government when I came to the throne, perhaps there might have been a few more Tory ladies, but that then, if you had come into office, you would never have dreamt of changing them. I was very calm, but very decided, and I think you would have been very pleased to see my composure and great firmness. The Queen of England will not submit to such trickery. Keep yourself in readiness, for you may soon be wanted. End quote. Notice her use of the phrase giving up my ladies, implying all of them. Ironically, this had blown up on Sir Robert Peel, the far-sighted Tory royalist. He wanted nothing more than to have the confidence of his monarch. This seemed a crucial demonstration but one with little real implications. So was an ideal, minor compromise. If Victoria refused, how could anyone believe that she wanted him as her Prime Minister at the head of her government? Victoria's view, of course, was that she didn't want him. Lord M had been perfectly good enough, and if he wasn't available, well, that was a matter for Parliament, and nothing to do with the ladies-in-waiting, who were friends to the Queen. It was impertinent for Peel to suggest the Queen should just drop her personal friends. The Duke of Wellington, the most senior Tory, tried his luck. Queen V was not the turning. Victoria wrote to the Whigs, who agreed to back her. Peel sent a letter recounting events and saying he couldn't become Prime Minister unless she changed some of her ladies. When Lord M saw Peel's letter, he was shocked. Victoria had told him in her note... It was a demand for her to clear out all of her ladies, not just some of the leading ones. She had outmanoeuvred him, Peel, 
the cabinet and the Duke of Wellington quite carefully and restored him as Prime Minister. As a piece of politicking, it was impressive, even breathing life into Lord M's fading cabinet. As a piece of constitutional overstep, it was pretty brazen and deceitful. It only worked because of Pyong's monarchism. Clearly, the young queen was inexperienced and fragile in appearance, but she could be a political player. I suspect a number of people began to reappraise the long-term view of things. Maybe this young queen would grow into a powerful ruler. For Victoria, this was about getting Lord M back and having her own way. From now, she was totally dependent on him and feeling her own insecurities, as her diary makes clear. Quote, Friday, 24th of May. This day, I go out of my teens and become 20. It sounds so strange to me. I have much to be thankful for and feel I owe more to two people than I can ever repay. My dearly beloved and angelic Lazen, and my dear excellent Lord Melbourne, I pray heaven to preserve these two invaluable beings in health and strength for many, many years to come, that I may never survive Lazen, and that Lord Melbourne may remain at the head of affairs for many years to come, not only for my happiness and prosperity, but for that of the whole country and of all Europe, and lastly, that I may become every day less unworthy of my high station. Lord M understood the real problem for Peel, as he said to Victoria, You must remember that he, Peel, is not a man accustomed to talking to kings, a man of quite different calibre. It's not like me. I've been brought up with kings and princes, which gives me that ease. I know the whole family know exactly what to say to him. Now, he has not that ease. Probably you were not at your ease. End quote. That's a bit arrogant, but it does overlap some of Lord M's strengths. We've bashed him a fair bit today for his many faults and failures. We should, in fairness, bear in mind he was extremely clever, well-educated in classics and literature. He had an active and inquiring mind, so it was ideal to fill in some gaps in Victoria's education. His wide-ranging interests were combined with wit, charm and connections to a vast number of influential people with whom he remained on good terms even if he was a political opponent. For a new queen, his diplomatic reach and connections were vital in building the essential relationships she needed to govern. If you zoom out past the affair of the bedchamber and Lady Flora Hastings, he mostly gave good service. If he wasn't an active and visionary planner, at least he managed to hold together a kind of government in extremely unsettled political times. A new monarch, at a time of immense domestic social unrest, and overseas troubles, on top of a banking crisis, could have spun off into a dangerous revolution. With all the excitement and scandal around Victoria, I'm almost surprised Sir John Conroy didn't reappear from the shadows to say, See, I told you she wasn't ready. She needs a strong adult as a personal secretary. Why, someone like me. Lord M had been Victoria's personal secretary, and she probably didn't realise 
that he was selective in his presentation of her royal powers. As a Whig, he viewed them as more constrained than Sir Robert Peel and the Tories did. But just remember how desperate the country was. The Chartist riots in Birmingham happened in July 1839, a couple of months after Victoria was virtually gleefully stopping a new Tory government in favour of the old Whig government, the one the Chartists were furious with, at the same time as she was having nighttime balls and dancing with the Grand Duke Alexander. You might be wondering why I've spent so much time in this show talking about rural poverty, riots and parliamentary chaos. Well, this is why. When Victoria was getting involved in what were, to be honest, fairly cruel, but ultimately a minor spat with a lady-in-waiting or stopping a peon government so she could have Lord M back, she was acting on her personal feelings. She was letting herself get involved in court scandal and political partisanship. She wasn't killing people or ordering them killed. She went to dances with a handsome nobleman and got distracted. Thousands of people went to dances, even during far worse crises than this. She was not a hardcore member of the ancient regime, dancing and partying whilst the starving peasants stormed the Bastille, but the echoes were there. In many ways, her actions were inconsequential. When a new Roman emperor arrived, he did more than have a minor spat with which faction was going to lead the Senate. Heads would roll, losers would be killed or forced into exile, wealth and estates would be confiscated, violent purges would happen, armies would be recalled to the capital, and generals might have to commit suicide. There was nothing like that here. But what Victoria was doing, in the eyes of the people, was focusing on trivialities and being high-handed in her conduct of government, to the point that it seemed she was stamping her foot and demanding things on her own way. It seemed to send a signal that the Queen was out of touch, and perhaps as stubborn or pleasure-focused as any of her Georgian ancestors. At worst, by tying herself so closely to a particular administration or government, she risked going down with it when it inevitably fell. Even in 1838, Victoria had found the novelty of Queen wearing off. There was so much hard work. She was drinking a lot and putting on weight. People commented that she looked bored, listless, overworked and yellow-skinned. The all-night parties can't have helped. In short, she was partying too much, working too hard, being badly advised by Lord M, getting involved in court intrigue and partisan politics too much. If you think that shows she was somehow a bad person, well, be honest. After her upbringing, ask yourself how well you would deal with being made queen and de facto empress at 20 without being allowed any sexual contact with anyone given tons of work that you are told is literally your birthright and then having the one person you rely on taken away by a political wrestling match in Parliament. Oh, and don't forget having your appearance, moods, speech and everything you did judged by everyone, which destroys self-confidence. Victoria was already mortified at still being so short. Her mood dwindled. 
She drank more. Her eating and weight shot up. She was sometimes listless and lacked energy, or deeply irritable. She was sometimes in tears over her body, and at other times uncaring. One low point, she even stopped brushing her teeth. If you are aware of mental health issues, you might be picking up that these are worrying signs of depression. Victoria was in real trouble. And remember, this is an age where physical faults were picked on and satirised and judged. Male or female, everyone got laid into by a vicious press and public. She was sometimes called fat by the press. Her greedy eating was infamous and she struggled with body image issues for her whole life. She famously remarked about her height that, quote, everyone grows but me, end quote. She'd be horrified. Almost every article about her starts off with her height at bullet point one or two, invariably followed by a bullet point about her waist size in later life and her eating habits. Her personal pain reprinted throughout history as a piece of amusing trivia. This is why Prince Albert was so absolutely critical. Not because Victoria was a woman who needed a husband, although the Victorian men around her felt this was what a woman required. No, it was because a husband and consort could act as a constitutional shield for Victoria, as well as getting rid of her mother and Conroy for good. Any household matters could go to him. Any advice could come from him. After he canvassed all sides, he could be a lightning rod for discontent. A close and effective working relationship between a queen and a prince consort could protect both the monarch and parliament from each other if the prince consort understood the role well. Effectively, a chief of staff and personal advisor, Prince Albert especially, could help support her in any storm. He was a man who believed in service to mankind, no matter what. The other role he could fulfil was as a pressure valve for her. Her husband could be a sole equal and push back against her temper or her ego in ways no politician ever could, but could also let her have someone to emotionally vent to and lean on. An enormous bonus about Albert was that he was a political outsider. He was politically astute, a believer in progress and highly sympathetic to the poor, with a tendency to overwork where Lord M preferred to relax and go to balls or his estates. Albert hated slavery, illogical conditions and generally was more of a political hurricane compared to the lazy Lord M. Britain in the 1830s was an unhappy mess and the working class quasi-revolution was vital to driving change. If you are really interested in the detail of the Battle of Bossendown Wood, the millennialist madman Courtney, the Chartist riots, the impact of the abolitionist movement on labour rights and on potential revolution, I'm doing an episode for patrons who back the show on patreon.com. It should be out around the time you hear this or a few days after. You can sign up for as little as $3 a month as a patron and then get access to all the patrons-only shows. There's a link on the website, ageofvictoria.com, to take you there, or you can go to patreon.com and search for Age of Victoria. Next episode, we will learn about Albert the Man and follow the royal courtship 
to its conclusion. Thank you for listening today. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you want to give me some feedback, or just have a chat, or ask any questions, you can email me at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com or on Facebook, on the Facebook page, or in the group. Just search for Age of Victoria. If you want more of an informal social chat or a bit of banter, follow me on Twitter at Age of Victoria. Take care, and bye for now.